Good evening. I appreciate so much Kirk's leading that song prior to the lesson tonight. This wasn't one of those coincidence songs. That, that one was requested. And for those of you that were able to be here this morning, or for those of you who were able to watch online this morning, the lyrics to that song, Take Time to Be Holy, and how your friends should see in your conduct the Christ, and, and all of the things in that song, a lot of them anyway, should be very obvious in how they tied in to this morning's lesson, because tonight is part two of this little sermon mini-series entitled, Oh to be like thee, which is our invitation song. This morning, I began by asking the question, what is your purpose in life? What is the one thing in this life that you live for? What is the one thing that you have given yourself totally over to in order to accomplish in this life no matter what? The one single most important all-consuming thing that your every day and night and thought and effort are focused upon achieving. As Christians, we talked about how that should be very easy to answer. Now, it's true that going to heaven is the end goal, but in order to accomplish it, we discussed how we must devote ourselves solely to achieving this other thing that we talked about this morning. And that is to become more like Jesus. Oh, to be like thee to become more like Jesus every day. Because it is only by dedicating ourselves solely to becoming more like Jesus every day that just as the song we just sang, we soon shall be fitted for service above. Scripture points out this single-mindedness of purpose as well, becoming more like Jesus all the time from the moment we're baptized until we take our last breath. It emphasizes this process in places like Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 and 8, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There it is. Jesus says, you've got you to continually learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, he said, and you shall find rest for your souls. The Apostle Paul spoke of this same process when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, watch this, are being transformed into the same image. There it is. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul says in that passage, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. From glory to glory, from one level to another, day by day, we're slowly being transformed into the image of Christ. Oh, to be like Him, becoming more like Him all the time. 
in verses 1 and 4 of that song, O To Be Like Thee, which inspired these two lessons. It indicates that becoming more like Jesus must be the Christian's all-consuming longing and prayer. Those are in the lyrics. The longing and prayer of every Christian, our purpose in life, no matter what the cost to accomplish that. We also this morning covered the sentiments in the first part of verse 2 of that song when we talked about in order to learn to truly forgive and love like Jesus, we must not only hear what the teacher said, we must not only see how the teacher demonstrated it, we must not only do our homework and take our textbook home and learn about love. Remember this morning? The other step that is so critical is that we must have hands-on practice to learn to love like Jesus. Without the hands-on practice, we're not going to do it. Like I said, when I learned to drive tractor-trailer, easy, easy to watch these other guys backing up and, and showing you how it's done and turn the wheel this way and check this and do that. But I'll tell you what, until you get behind that wheel, you probably ain't going to back it that well until you get some experience. And so, as I said this morning, we need to learn how to love like Jesus from experience. But here's the kicker. Here's the catch. We can't learn to love like Jesus loved until we're disliked and abandoned and all those things like Jesus was. We talked this morning from Matthew chapter 5. It's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to respond kindly to those that are kind to us. It's easy to give to those who give to us. But, but Jesus, we know, talked about, as, as we talked about this morning, again from Matthew chapter 5, the fact that in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, this new life that we've risen to live in, we've got to love those that don't love us. Well, how do you learn to do that? Well, you only can learn to do that when somebody don't love you. That makes sense? That work for everybody? You don't learn how to drive a truck on snow and ice to get out there and learn to drive a truck on snow and ice. Watching somebody else do it in a movie ain't going to get the job done because you don't know how it feels. It's the same way with this. We must have many opportunities to practice and perfect the love of Christ ourselves, and the only way that happens is when we're hurt like Jesus was hurt. So we must take advantage of every opportunity. And if we could just, and I, I haven't mastered this. I'm not standing up here because, oh, I got this down. I don't have this down. I'm trying to learn. This sermon's for me as much as anybody. I'm trying to learn. Every time that something like that happens, to have my first thought be, okay, okay, this is my chance to get behind the wheel. This is my chance to practice it like Jesus had it. I'm trying to learn that too, just like y'all, okay? But this is, if, if we could see it that way to begin with, how it would change things. So tonight, I want to move on from that topic or, or move on from, from just learning how to love like Jesus and, and cover a couple of other areas that we need to learn to be more like thee, more like Jesus. As I said this morning, we want to share the family resemblance. We want to look like Christ. So our friends in our conduct, his likeness will see. And verse 2 of that song, O To Be Like Thee, says... Helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. First two elements, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting. This congregation, as a congregation and as individuals, does an outstanding job of cheering the faint-hearted, of helping the helpless. So much 
money and effort is spent every year in the food baskets to give those who don't have the ability to provide Christmas dinner for their families. And, and, and we could go on and on and on and on and list them, but you know as well as I do all the good works this congregation does. It's not just the congregation, it's individuals. It's individuals. Individuals like, th that rather than naming names, individuals that continually seek to go out of their way to cheer the fainting and help the helpless. Listen, last Wednesday night, remember, Pat came forward asking for prayers, remember? Wednesday night, and what did she say? She said, this is her family. Now, she understands that. She sees a warmth here. She sees a love here. She sees a kindness here. She sees family here that, that she, it's easily recognizable. And brethren, I'm telling you, it is very easily recognizable. And, and so we, we, we do really good with that, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting. So I don't need to go any further into that. But that other phrase, Seeking the wandering sinner to find. Seeking the wandering sinner to find. Three weeks ago tomorrow, had the opportunity to go out fishing on Keystone Lake with Kirk and my son-in-law, J.R. Weaver. Now, we planned this fishing trip in advance quite a, quite a number of months. It has to meet up with schedules and all of that, all this other work has to be done. And, because we're out after dark, you have to make sure you got, you know, headlamps so that you can see the bait hooks, and you have to make sure you have rain gear and warm gear and rubberized gloves. It gets cold. We've been out on that lake. It's been really cold. Three weeks ago, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, it's bad enough, but it wasn't all that bad. We've been out there when it's a lot colder, uh, JR and I anyway, fishing. But the point is you have to plan. You have to go through all this planning. Then. We have to leave the relative safety of our homes behind and go out on the water. Now listen, this time of year, Keystone is not real swimming temperature, just so you all know, okay? When you get out there and the waves are almost as tall as the boat is, and you got on winter jackets, you really don't want to go overboard, so it's not as safe as it is sitting in your recliner. It doesn't mean the boat's going over, but you put yourselves in a little bit more danger as well. But then the third thing, besides being prepared in advance and leaving the relative safety and security of our homes behind, <laughs> then comes the shad. Oh, the shad. You see, for those of you that don't know or don't fish, shad are these little fish like this, and catfish love them. And so we got into the boat last week, and we went looking for shad. Now what JR does, he stands up on front of the boat. He's got this big round net with a big long rope on it. It's a weighted net. And so he throws it out into the water and it comes when he does it right. It's in a good big circle and it goes down and the outside's weighted. It's supposed to go down over the shad and collect them and then all of a sudden it hits the bottom. He'll start pulling the rope up. Keystone's a big lake, just so you all know. And finding fish this big in a lake that size is not always easy, even with a fish finder. So we're out on the water. And we throw the net, no, we don't, JR does. He throws the net 10, 12 times here, nothing. 10 or 12 times here, nothing. 12, 14 here, nothing. And we try, and we try, and we spend, we spend literally, I, I didn't time it, maybe an hour and a half, nothing. Can't find him. There was talk about going back to the Cleveland Walmart to get hot dogs to chop up to use for fish bait because we couldn't find the shad. Really, I kid you not. So you know what we did? JR says, well, 
Maybe he looks down, down Keystone, he said, there's all those birds floating around down there. They'll know where the fish are. Let's go down there and cast the net. So we went down there, we cast the net, he cast the net. Why do I keep saying we? I didn't do anything. He's casting the net and he's casting the net and he's pulling the net up and he's throwing the net and he's pulling, nothing. I mean, absolutely blowing up nothing but water and we got plenty of that in the boat already, okay? So he says, well, we can go up around There's this place. He used to catch them and, and it's like an hour or two up around and back and we couldn't find these, we couldn't find the shad. But here's the point, what do you do when you can't find, when you can't find them, what do you do? Do you go home? Do you go to Walmart, buy hot dogs, what do you do? So we're, we're going out across the lake, the wind's blowing, waves up a little bit, not bad. We get out across the lake and, and on the depth finder, we found shad. They're between 30 and 35 feet down on the bottom. His net has a 20 foot rope. And there's clouds of them down there. 20 foot rope. So what do you do? So he hunts around, he digs around under the dash of the boat, and aha, he's got a second net with another rope. Aha, now we're getting somewhere. So we had the extra rope, cast the net down. Guess what we got? We got shad. But we spent probably a couple hours, two hours and a half, looking for shad. But the point, 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 you don't quit just because of obstacles when you're fishing. Oh, and by the way, I thought it was going to be the worst time fishing we'd ever had. We caught 72 catfish in two days. 72. Why? Because we didn't quit when the going got tough and we couldn't find what we were looking for. And I want you to think about that and think about being like Jesus. Jesus did the same thing on his fishing expedition. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus got prepared in advance, didn't he? Did Jesus know hundreds of years before he came that he was coming? Yes. Did he leave clues like through Isaiah and all the prophets? And was, was the preparation being made? Yes. Doesn't Galatians chapter 4 say that, that God sent his son at just the right time? Yes. Sent him at just the right time. The plans had been made. The Roman Empire had the best road system that the world had ever known at that time. Everything was in place. The Roman Empire was ruling just the way that, that Daniel said in chapter 2 that they would be when the kingdom was established, everything, but it took all this preparation. It took God putting himself in human flesh. It took God leaving the safety and security, number two, just like we left home. He had to leave the safety and security of heaven to come down here. And then he had to find those lost who were willing to respond to his love. He had to find those lost. Now, there's a lot of lost people in this world, but not everybody is going to respond correctly. Jesus was willing to seek the wandering sinner to find. Jesus was willing to continue to seek the seeking sinner. Not every sinner wants to be saved, right? Is that a fair statement? Not, everybody's, not everybody wants to give up what they're doing and be saved. No, they don't. And see, so, so we've got to be as persistent as fishermen. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We can't give up just because they're hard to find. We can't give up just because there's a world, a big world here and we're looking for one sinner at a time. We can't give up just because it looks like we don't have the material to reach them. We need to find some more rope. And when we do, we'll succeed. That's, that's doing what Jesus did. That's becoming like Jesus. Because Jesus came to this earth and he sought the wandering sinners. 
And Jesus didn't stop. He went throughout the villages of Galilee and, and he continued, even continued trying, pleading, praying for the very soldiers that led him away to be crucified. Jesus was, was planting those seeds and trying to find the ones that would respond. He, he kept trying. And he told us that we must be fishers of men in that same way. Another thing that we see that we must learn to emulate if we would truly be like Jesus is to try to always be in the worship and study assemblies of God's people, no matter what. Try. Not everybody can be every time. I understand it. Not, this is a biblical point. We must try to always be in the worship and study assemblies of God's people as much as we possibly can, no matter what. No matter what anybody else there ever says about, does to, or thinks of us. That was Jesus. I want you to consider, and, and I looked up, and I was real careful to look up the, the chronological order of these verses in a couple of different references, and, and do some digging here. And, and I want you to consider the chronology of this. And, and I bring this up because we want to be more like Jesus, right? This is what Jesus did. Jesus was in the study assemblies of his time of God's people, no matter what was done to him or said about him. And he continued to be because he realized he was there for God, not the people. Turn to me in your Bibles. Follow this chronology. Turn to me to Luke 4. Luke 4, we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all say things we wish we hadn't said. We all do things we wish we hadn't done. And we're ashamed of it. And we beg for God's forgiveness. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1. But there are times when Christians rub other Christians the wrong way. Maybe they didn't mean it to come out like that. Maybe... We heard it wrong. Maybe they're having a bad day. Ever had a bad day? You ever said something when you, was having, when you were just tired to just come out wrong? Probably if you're human, you did. But Jesus didn't let that stop him. Watch this chronology unfold. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was... Notice this was all the time, he would, this was his custom, this is what he did. People, people didn't bother to call Jesus on his smartphone on Saturday morning because they knew where he was, he was in the synagogue. It was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Well, we know what happened. He reads a little bit and they say, oh, isn't this wonderful? His, these gracious words are falling from his lips. Then he applies the scriptures in a way they don't like and they want to throw him off a cliff and kill him. That's basically what we see in verses 17 through 27. Then in verse 28, that concludes that little episode, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go after being treated like that in, in church? Now, now, I use the word church just to mean his worship assembly on Saturday. I realize the church wasn't there yet. He was in the synagogue. But, but the Old Testament, if, if you'll allow me to use that terminology, the Old Testament version of church, when he's treated like that in church, when they take him out and want to throw him off the cliff, what does Jesus do? Where does he go? Well, 
Look at verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Capernaum was just a few miles from Nazareth. His teaching them on the Sabbath in Capernaum occurred in the synagogue according to Mark 1, verse 21, and Luke 4, 31 through 33. So, so when he's teaching them here in Luke 4, 31, he's teaching them in the synagogue. Notice this. The members of the synagogue wanting to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth did not stop or slow him down from continuing to worship God as God had instructed. Why? Because Jesus was in the synagogue for one reason, his father. And he was not going to allow anything that anyone said or did to or about him to deter him from worshiping God. It wasn't going to happen. Verse 34 and following of Luke chapter 4 go on to tell us that in the afternoon after he heals a man, he departs to Simon Peter's house, and then after an evening of healing, you know what Jesus does the next morning? Look at me in verses 42 and following of Luke 4. When it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. The crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us that later he came back to Capernaum. After he preached in some other synagogues, he comes back to Capernaum, Mark 2 and verse 1. And look what it says in Mark 3 and verse 1. Mark 3 and verse 1. Capernaum, not far from Nazareth, where they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He comes back to Capernaum, Mark 2 and verse 1, and in Mark 3 and verse 1, he entered the synagogue again. See, you can't keep Jesus out of the synagogue. It doesn't matter if you want to, it was a different synagogue. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. It was the one in Nazareth. But the bottom line is you couldn't keep him out. You couldn't keep him away from this assembly for his father's sake. You couldn't keep him away. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Jesus knew what they were up, again, up to. He knew what they wanted to do, and yet he's still in the synagogue. He knew going in what they were trying to do. They were plotting and scheming against him. They wanted to trap him, and he knew it, and he still went. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to eat, do evil, to save life or to kill? He's still trying, is he still trying to teach him? He's still trying to teach him to love? Absolutely. He said, come on, let's reason together here, brethren, he says. My paraphrase. But they kept silent. When he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. The hand was restored as whole as the other. And then the plot thickens, as it were. Even despite how they had felt about him in Nazareth when they'd wanted to throw him off the cliff. You know where we find Jesus in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6? You know where we find him? Find him back in the synagogue in his hometown. I looked up from a couple of trusted Church of Christ commentators about this whole idea in the timeline in chapter 6 and verse 1 of Mark. It says, then he went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And, and they, they believe it's Nazareth. 
his own country, didn't mean like the U.S., that big a country, but to his own hometown, not Capernaum this time, but back to Nazareth. And, and I believe that is true based on the history and the stuff that I looked up. So, so what would make Jesus go back to the synagogue in Nazareth where they'd wanted to throw him off cliff? One thing, he was there for God. Now, he was there to love people and try to teach them the truth, but he was there for God. Were the Jews supposed to come together on the Sabbath? Yeah. The way we're supposed to come together on Sunday? Yeah. But Jesus continued despite the animosity. And I wonder, I wondered as I read that, and I wonder even now, how many over the ages, since the church began 2,000 years ago, I wonder how many religious people have totally given up on church, totally walked, completely, totally given up on church, walked away, and lost their soul because they did not understand the reason they were there. The reason they were there is God. If the reason you're here is not God, you're here for the wrong reason. If the reason you are here is not because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, you're here for the wrong reason. If your faith is in people, you are going to be let down because people let each other down despite their best efforts because we're only people. Is that right? Is that right? Husbands, we don't want to let our wives down, do we? I don't want to let mine down. Wives, you don't want to let your husbands down, do you? No, of course, but sometimes we do, right? We, we, sometimes we do because we're only human. Brethren, sometimes we let each other down, and if the only reason somebody's in church is because this brother or that sister or this group or that group, we're here for the wrong reason. We've got to be here for God because God don't let us down. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. How many people since the church was established have given up and walked away from worshiping and remaining faithful to God totally, totally, simply because of something that some other member said or did or thought about them? You suppose there's been a few? You suppose there's been a few? I suppose there's been a few. If we are ever going to be truly transformed into the image of Christ, then we, like Jesus, must put assembling together to worship God as he commanded above and beyond every member of the church, every member of our family. We need to be here first and foremost because of what God did on that cross for us. That don't let us down. And we're setting ourselves up to fail if we're here for any other reason. But Jesus didn't set himself up to fail. He was there. He was where he belonged for God. Third and final area I want to concentrate on our becoming more like Christ in tonight is a very well-known and familiar direction. And, and when I begin, you may say, why is he preaching on that again? Well, the reason I'm preaching on that again is probably because not all of us are at the point that I'm going to talk about yet. So I'm going to remind us again. And that is in the area of coming to understand and accept 
and expect that every trial we go through in this earthly life as children of God is just one more opportunity to learn to trust God fully. Every struggle, trial to, that we see coming is just one more opportunity to watch God work, to see God's hand at work. An opportunity to learn to trust God more. When a trial comes, and I'm still learning this too, but when a trial comes, one of the things that we need to get out of it is not that it's this terrible trial, even if it is, and I'm not minimizing anybody's trials, but brethren, we have got to learn that no matter how bad it is, when we see it coming, we need to think differently. As members of the family of God, we need to think, okay, here's a chance right now for me to pray to God, to watch God work. This is an opportunity to increase my faith. Would it change our lives if some of these struggles we see coming, we, we looked at them that way before they struck and said, you know what, hey, I got this opportunity coming to increase my faith. Father, and give it to him. Would that help some of us? Would help me. And so the reason I bring this up again is because I don't think we're all programmed yet to do that. We talk about it a lot but I'm not sure we've yet internalized this to the point that it's just second nature when we have a hard time instead of going <gasps> to stand back and go, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn to trust God just a little bit more to see me through. That's basically what Jesus did. In John chapter 12, Verses 27 and 8, Jesus said, and I'll, go ahead, turn there, it'd be good to turn there. Yes, please do. We must come to understand, accept, and expect that every trial we go through as children of the living God is just one more opportunity to trust God more fully. Yeah. In John chapter 12, verse 27 and 8, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. Jesus admitted this was hard. This was troubling. He was troubled to his soul. This was not surface. He knew what was coming. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, get me out of this. Lord, take this away. I don't want to do this. Get this out of here. This is too much. I can't. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Look at his response. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Bring it on. Bad paraphrase, but mine. He says, should I, should I ask to escape from this? I, I know this terrible thing's coming, and, and, and I'm going to die for people, and, and I know the plan, and, and Jesus knew everything going to happen to him, John 18 and verse 4. Shall I pray that God takes this from me to, to stop this from having to keep this? So is that, you no, know, no, no, this is the whole reason I'm here. Father, glorify your name. Lord, let it happen. Just let me glorify you in it. Are we to glorify God in our problems? Peter tells us we are in 1 Peter 4. And so we need to, to learn this. Jesus would later pray in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, three times, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He, he saw it coming. He said, Lord, if it's possible, but if not, that's okay. Your will be done. Lord, I know you'll see me through. And your will is more important than mine. 
And, and, and we talk a lot about this concept when, when we see trials coming, we see problems coming of, of how to handle this. We, we talk about it a lot. We, we talked just recently about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We all know the story so well, we can probably quote it at this point, how our faith is refined like gold in a fire through our trials. I talked about that recently in a couple of lessons. We, we know that, but yet, do we see our trials as refineries to make our faith better? When we see a trial coming, do we say, okay, here's my chance. I'm in the driver's seat, here it comes. Lord, I, I wanna grow from this. Or do we face it differently? We're very familiar how God sits as a refiner and purifier of silver, purging us like gold and silver from Malachi 3 and verse three. I did a Devo on that a while ago. We're, we're mindful, we hear it a lot from the book of James, chapter one, verses two and three, how we're to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We, we know these verses. We know these verses that should make us look at an oncoming trial and say, Lord, here's a chance for me to grow in my faith and trust you, God, I'm giving this all to you. But do we? And I, I didn't think about how often we, we see this, we, God tries to remind us of this all the time. The, the reminders of this sort of thing are, are all around us. Let me, let me give you some examples you might not be quite so familiar with. I love this saying. We were on vacation a few years ago in Gulf Shores and I bought a t-shirt there with a sailing ship on I love sailing ships, I've told you that before, but on the back there's this slogan. And I just saw it the other day and I went, whoa, that goes with the lesson, check this out. The slogan on back underneath the sailing ship said, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. I like that. A smooth sea does not make skilled sailors. Probably you that are a little older have heard, you know, diamonds are a girl's best friend. Diamonds are pretty, right ladies? Especially some of you younger ladies, right? Diamonds are pretty, right? Diamonds are gorgeous, diamonds are precious. precious. You know how diamonds are made? You know how diamonds are made? Pressure on an old ugly piece of coal. Now it takes, you know, a lot of years, but ugly chunk of coal, right? Kids maybe get, you know, chocolate coal in their stockings if they're naughty, you know, that whole thing that we just went through, right? Christmas. But an old black, a chunk, dirty coal, pressure over the years is what creates something beautiful. See the reminder? It is the pressure on us sometimes when we totally give it to God and grow in our faith and, and we totally surrender it to Him that makes us, that, that pressure is what makes us beautiful, is what makes us shine. Some of you ladies, maybe it's not diamonds. Maybe some of you ladies have worn pearls to church. Maybe real pearls. And they're beautiful. Real pearls are really, really beautiful. Matter of fact, Jesus used pearls a couple times in the Bible, right? Well, he talked about the kingdom being like the pearl of great price. Remember that, right? Pearl of great price. Pearl's a beautiful thing. John in the Revelation talked about the gates of heaven being what? A single pearl. Beautiful. You know how pearls are made? <laughs> Irritants. Here's what happens. There's these oysters that make pearls. And, and, and the way the oyster makes a pearl is 
is there's an irritation gets in the oyster. Oyster's on the bottom of the sea. There's an irritation that gets in there. So like when you have something in your throat, you can't get out. There's this irritation or grit or something gets in the oyster. And, and the oyster secretes a liquid called nacre, N-A-C-R-E. And it wraps around this little rock or this little irritation, whatever it is, and, and more and more of it gets on there. And over time it hardens and guess what you get? Pearls begin with irritations. If it wasn't for irritations, none of you ladies would have pearls. Just saying. If it wasn't for pressure, we wouldn't know what a diamond was. So many times we see this. I was reminded of it. <laughs> I was reminded of it again. We were down to Honor Heights Park to see the lights. And I happened to be sitting in the, the back of the bus. And David and Kelly were on one side. And, and Foster and I were sitting on the other side in the, in the back seat there in the bus. And, Kelly spoke up and she said something to the effect of how beautiful those lights were and what made them so much more beautiful was the darkness behind them. Uh-huh. How many of you have taken a trip to Honor Heights Park and seen the lights somewhere in the last five years? Raise your hands. Raise them high so I can see them. Look around, everybody. Look, look, look around. Most of the congregation, right? Okay, now here comes the real punchline. How many of you have gone down there in broad daylight to look at the Christmas lights in Honor Heights Park? Raise your, raise your hands. Look around, not a soul. You know what? Honor Heights Park is not that pretty in the daytime. It's pretty, but it's nowhere compared to what it is at night. You see, when the, when the dark, when the background is the darkest is when the lights are the prettiest. Does that make sense? And brethren, when we have the opportunity to shine the most is when the background is the darkest. All of these are nothing but illustrations of the same point. The point is, when the darkness comes, when the storms comes, when the trials come, We need to see them as opportunities to learn to lean on God more heavily, to trust him just like Jesus. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, no, no. Father, glorify your name. We need to see the darkness as opportunities to shine our lights more to other people. We need to see the storms as opportunities to become better sailors for Jesus on this sea of life. You can put it in whatever terms you want, but brethren, these irritations, these trials, are what teach us that we don't have what it takes as individuals in and of ourselves to make it through them. It's how God teaches us we need Him. And the quicker we learn how much we need Him and the more we learn how much we need Him, the more we depend on Him and eventually, guess what? Oh yeah, we get to become like Jesus. Father, not my will, but yours be done. If we're ever going to truly be more like Jesus, we must learn to look at every trial, every storm, and every dark cloud as it approaches as just another opportunity, an, off, an awesome opportunity to more clearly see and then lean upon the power and the presence and the promise and the providence of God. To be more like Jesus has to be the one overriding purpose, the all-consuming purpose of every blood-bought child of God, the one purpose we all give ourselves over to completely achieving in this earthly life. It involves learning and studying and perceiving and practicing all these things from a whole new pure and much holier perspective than we had when we were out there in the world, from a whole different understanding than we had when we were out there in the world. When we were out there in the world and we see some of these storms coming, it was like, why me, Lord? What did I do to deserve this? 
As Christians, we need to see them as, this is a chance to grow in my faith. And this whole change begins when we hear and believe the gospel, understanding that God's way is the only way. When we are willing to confess to anybody and everybody that will listen, that from now on we're going to follow Jesus Christ no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter the crowd, no matter the consequences. Is that what Jesus did? No matter the cost, no matter the crowd, no matter the consequences. Is that how he followed Jesus? Is that how he followed God? That's how we're to follow him. It begins when we decide to truly repent and turn our lives and all that we are, our pursuits, our time, our energy, everything we are, to turn it around, to turn it toward God. Then be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. You know what that is? That's a clean slate and a fresh start. That's what baptism is. It's a clean slate and a fresh start. It's saying, I know that I've messed up in my life. I didn't get it right. I can't lean on myself because myself ain't strong enough to deal with all of these things. It's saying that God's way is the right way. And God, if you'll just give me another chance, from now on, my, my only priority will to be to become more like Jesus. God says, okay. So he's willing to erase our sins if we're baptized into Christ and give us this new life, this new chance to get it right this time, a chance to start over. And when we make those occasional mistakes, we don't want to, but when we do, God is willing to forgive us our sins and give us another start. Isn't God awesome? Isn't God awesome? Wow. You think he knows us or something, wouldn't you? If you would begin the process tonight of becoming more like Jesus by being born again into the family, or if you've already begun that journey and you've already become a Christian, but you've stalled out and you're becoming more like Jesus, and you need the prayers of the saints to be stronger the next time that, that somebody gives you an opportunity, hello, look at it that way, the next time somebody gives you an opportunity to love like Jesus, the next time someone gives you an opportunity to learn to trust God more because of the trial they're putting on you, if you need strength for that, we'll pray for you. Tonight's sermon is not to minimize what anybody's going through. Tonight's sermon is to tell you God wants to work in your life. And that your life be a lot better if you let him have it all, all of it. Would you be more like Jesus? Let us know right now if we can help you in any way to do that. As we stand and sing the song, and don't stand and sing the song if you don't mean it, oh, to be like thee as we stand right now.